Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome back. Today we're looking at an increasingly popular approach in education research, actor network theory. ANT has been part of the social sciences for over 40 years and has belatedly been adopted in various areas of education research. This is not an approach that can be explained in a couple of sentences. So today I'm joined by Helena Ratner from Aarhus University to make sense of all things ANT. Helena has been using these approaches for some time and she's an ideal guide to what can be a really tricky but rewarding way of approaching the world. So first I ask Helena for a quick orientation. For the completely uninitiated, can she explain what ANT is in a nutshell? So I would say ANT is a set of analytical principles that allow you to study the composition of the world as composed of relationships between human and non-human elements. Then, so let's say we want to view this podcast as an actor network. Then of who would be the agents? Obviously, that would be you and me having a conversation, but the this podcast wouldn't exist as a podcast. It wouldn't acquire that kind of existence without the microphones, without the software editor, without the the platform hosting the podcast. And then you have our email correspondence, all the logistics of you flying to, to Europe and our calendars being coordinated. So all these actors, all these entities actually were part of making this podcast. So it sounds super interesting. It also sounds super complex. Why does this approach appeal to you, making things seem so complicated? So I think it allows you to take seriously the agency and the difference they pose into educational worlds. And it also allows me to explore how they reconfigure what it means to be human what it means to be a student, a teacher, because with ANT, you don't just see these humans as isolated from the world around them. Rather, they become human or they acquire their agency through whatever relations they enter with other entities, technical, analog. And in that sense, it provides a very interesting entry point for understanding the influence of novel technologies. Yeah, no, absolutely. Actually, before we get on too much into the, into the details, I mean, these ideas don't exist without people and humans themselves. I mean, briefly, who were the big names behind ANT? I'm aware of Bruno Latour, but I mean, there were others. And who were these people and what were they trying to achieve? So I think it, it, it was sort of a collective in the early 80s um, in Ecole de Mines in Paris, and they were Bruno Latour, Michel Callan, Madalena Krisch, and uh, English sociologist John Law. And they were part of uh, science and technology studies, um, which is sort of social studies of science. How does knowledge get made? How can we understand knowledge? And their goal in that context was to provide a rather comprehensive and nuanced understanding of how science and technology innovations get made And they wanted to do that by recognizing the agency of both human and non-human actors and the complex relationships that exist between these actors. And of course, when they did that, it was because they wanted to move away from sort of 
more classical sociological con conventional ways of understanding facts and science. So these, so there was a lot of, especially Bruno Latour has been quite uh, visible and ironic and also a bit funny about how uh, in his critique of sociology, the sociology of the social, social explanations, but basically they didn't want, they said we cannot understand science and technology by explaining them away through pre-existing culture, social norms, structures, or institutions. No, we need to make detailed empirical accounts about how human built relationships with non-humans and how this result, for instance, in a new technology or a fact. I mean, it's very provocative. It's always difficult with Latour to know how seriously to take him as well, because he was a very provocative, provocative writer, wasn't he? But that can be part of the pleasure. I mean, when you read very boring and very serious academic text, there's also some freshness and novelness in this Latour de France <laughs> coming with, <laughs> and, and sort of also, of course, making a straw man of a lot of sociologists in doing so. So you can't take him too seriously. But that's definitely what got me interested. I was sort of educated in a sort of very heavy sociological environment, focusing on systems theory and Latour definitely was a very fresh provocation of that kind of thinking. No, I definitely would agree with you there. Now, you've talked a lot about actors and you've also talked about human and non-human. I mean, what are these actors? And why do we talk about human and non-human actors? So what ENT allows, allows you to do is to sort of do away with all prepositions you may have about what an actor is, what it means to act. So if you think about most of modern history and sociology and psychology, this idea of the subject with intentions, with feelings, emotions, free will is quite central. NT does away with all of that. So mm. an actor does not necessarily need to have those things. An actor is someone who can make a difference. But that is not enough because you also understand an actor as a relational thing. It is a product of the relations with other actors in a sort of networky form, hence the name actor network theory. So agency is a relational effect of how you engage in relations with other entities. And so, so lots of people working in this area talk about non-humans and things, for example. So, I mean, what do we gain from seeing non-humans as actors in their kind of ANT positions? And a lot of people have also been very provoked by that, uh, so Latour, he wrote this very famous article, so where are the missing masses? And, and so he would say, when we account for sociality, we, only, we have all these invisible social forces, but if we just look at this social situation where you and I are having a conversation, there are all these actors that make it possible. I've mm. already mentioned the microphone, the recorder, but just the closed doors. It allows us not to have to pay attention to whatever else happens on this campus. So all so he would have us look into all these mundane actors that actually make a big difference and shape how we can act as humans, how we are articulated as human beings. But they also talk about hybridity, for example, the belief that kind of, you know, a, you're neither a human nor a non-human in a kind of pure sense. I mean, humans are kind of quasi-subjects, I guess. And yeah, that's an idea he has from French philosopher Michel Serre. So even though we can talk about an actor... An actor would never exist outside the network. There's no thing outside the network. Mm. Latour has some very philosophical ideas about a plasma. But it, it's hybrid because it's relational. 
So we are here, we are equipped with all sorts of non-human elements to be able to have these conversations. And in that sense, we are not just human. That would be a very arrogant way to view this conversation as just an example of our human ingenuity, right? Yeah. So that's why we are hybrid. That's why we are quasi-objects. And I think Michel Serre has this very beautiful example of a game of baseball. So when you have the ball in the baseball game, you will see how people orient their body around the ball. And mm. in that sense, it's a quasi-object that sort of um, coordinates and orchestrates a whole series of bodily movements around that ball, right? And that's the quasi-agency and the hybridity. So you shouldn't be looking at the players, you should be looking at the ball. But Latour was also known to complain at some points about the term network, and it actually has some kind of unwanted connotations. I mean, what, what was the problem with talking about networks? Yeah, so that was another very funny, I think it started with a conference talk, and then it became this book uh, in the movement called uh, sort of ENT and after, uh, an edited volume published in 1999 by John Law. And Latour was sort of introduced, there are four things wrong with the actor network theory. The word actor, the word network, the word theory, and the hyphen. Four nails in the coffin, sort of typical Latour. But basically, you have to think about the term actor network theory. It was invented in the 80s, mm. where internet was not an everyday household item. And network, for Latour, it is a very processual term. So network is what happens when associations are made between different human and non-human elements. And any association will also imply a modification, a displacement, a disruption. But with the internet, what Latour laments as the double click of the mouse, <laughs> then network comes to mean the opposite, yeah. smooth, uh, frictionless connections. So in that sense, you think the sort of the internet, the double click of the mouse has sort of brought too many other meanings yeah. than what he originally anticipated and wanted to do with the term. Absolutely. Although the kind of the term still does have currency. And we talked, you talked about translation. I think it's really interesting to talk about some of the specific concepts within ANT. So, I mean, we can talk, we can start with translation, but I'm also interested in this idea of print, the, the principle of generalized symmetry. I mean, can you talk a little bit about what, 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 what they mean by symmetry? So that was a term developed by Michel Collin in 1986. He wrote about the sociology of translations and made this sociological study of fishermen in a French village and how they wanted to have scallops. And the principle of symmetry, that was actually, he, so he introduced the idea of generalized symmetry, which sort of, there was already a debate in science studies about symmetry that came from Bloor. And he would say that we need to explain failures and successes of scientific knowledge in the same term. Mm. And what Kalan did with generalized symmetry was to sort of say, well, we don't even need to do that. We need to go even further and explain all entities using the same terms. And of course, this both relates to the idea of the actor and actor network, that anything in principle can have agency if the network attributes or grants them or delegates them agency. But it also means that when you go and study people, and you have to remember in the 80s what a lot of sociologists of, in science studies were looking into were contra controversies, mm. right? And in controversies, there would usually be multiple and quite conflicting viewpoints of what is nature and what is culture. We see the same thing in education, right? Is digitalization a utopian future or a dystopian that will sort of 
ruin everything we know about what is good in education. But what he wanted to do was to say, well, so when we explain it using the same terms, it does not mean that we should simply use the terms of those we study. No, we should use the terms of actor network theory. So it was also a way to sort of introduce actor network theory as a language to apply to all types of actors. And we've talked about translation quite a lot. So I guess we should kind of build upon this idea of translation. I mean, what's, what's the kind of the general idea there? So translation, I mean, if you take it as an English word, it just means to go from one language to another. So something quite different is meant here. So Latour has used many different terms, mediation, hybridization, association. And if you go back to the original Latin, the Latin original origin of the term, it means to move something physically from one place to another. So there's that sense of materiality. Mm. That also comes with association when things are connected. So a translation is sort of the processual moment in actor network theory when actors are connected, but also disrupted, displaced, deferred in whatever way through that moment of connectivity. So rather than inertia, uh, rather than the sort of frictionless network, it always means some sort of change of affairs. And this is also what you should be interested in with actor network theory. And this is where I see also a lot of students having troubles because they, oh, I found a translation. Now I've made the conclusion, I found it. But it's not interesting that you found a translation. It sort of compels you because it's such an open concept, right? Mm. It compels you to empirically describe what was translated, how, what was excluded, with what implications. And you mentioned materiality. I mean, it seemed to be a kind of material semiotic approach. So you're mapping relations that are simultaneously material between things and semiotic between concepts. So, I mean, I guess this assumes that relations are both material and semiotic. Yes, John Law once described ANT as sort of the ruthless application of semiotics. So if you say semiotics is that words take their meaning from relations with other words, then with ANT, this is generalized to account for everything. Everything gains its meaning, its identity, its shape and form through its relations to other entities in a network. So this is what material semiotics means. And I think one important implication of that is that of non-essentialism, because anything, a technology, and this is also why ENT is also very helpful, if you want to avoid the trap of technology determinism because Mm. you cannot know in advance what a technology can do or does this is an empirical question in situated localized practices because of that you don't have an essence you only have situated more or less stabilized more or less durable uses of technologies and this shows us the important lesson that everything in principle could be otherwise it's super interesting you can also see why it's super controversial before we get to some of the kind of controversy i'm really interested methods wise actually how do people engage in actually kind of in ant studies what are the key methods used in in ant research so i think that's i've seen all kinds of methods used mainly qualitative but also quantitative but i think the question is not so much which method you use but how you use sort of your usual repertoire of qualitative methods so there's a kind of spirit of using methods. yeah there's this slogan of follow the actor myself i think it's a quite poor slogan because it sounds so easy you find an actor and you follow it but then in practice you'll find out oh that actor tends to multiply into a network and how do i follow it and how do i decide which trace to follow but 
if we don't discuss that, but just think about what does follow the actor means to do an interview or to do a document analysis, to use those sort of classical qualitative methods, then I think you, you, have, you are on, on, on the right track. So, for instance, a lot of people have anxiety. They think, oh, they're non-humans. I need, I need to be symmetrical. And they take this to mean I need to have an equal amount of human and non-human actors. Yeah, yeah. And you shouldn't have that. That is an open question. Who is the actor, right? But so how can you use interviews because then you interview a human? So an interview does not become an insight into sort of an intersubjective meaning-making space as it would be in other sociological traditions. No, an interview can be an entry point into uh, people's accounts of how they engage with non-human actors, yeah. technologies, right? So that would be how you do an interview if you're interested in social materiality. Documents as well, you could also say you don't only look for the discursive articulations of concepts. No, documents are material entities that travel. Either they are ignored or they are taken up, they are circulated. They become replicated or maybe translated in other documents. So it's sort of the particular materiality of documents that you are equally interested in. And, and actually, you said Latour had a problem with the word theory. Is it better to kind of describe ANT as a method, not a theory? There's, there's a lot of sort of people really like to be humble and say it's not a theory. And then when Latour wanted to make that statement, that's also because he said, actor network theory, it sounds like another version of the agent structure, sort of big theoretical puzzle that sort of haunted sociology since its beginning, right? So it's not a theory of the social, rather it's a set of principles to study the social or to study any kind of space where something is produced. And I think, it, but I think it would be wrong to say that it's non-theoretical because it certainly comes with a lot of ontological assumptions. Mm. For instance, that nothing has an essence. Uh, you strip humanity of subjectivity, free will, emotions, attentions. It, it it comes with the idea of relationality that everything gains its essence or its identity from its relations to other actors and performativity. So so all these um, ideas are certainly theoretical, so it would be wrong to say it's not a theory. But it's not a classical theory that introduces you concepts about social forces that can explain away mm. science and technology. No, absolutely. But so, I mean, if we see it as a set of principles, how have you used these principles in your own work? Is there a particularly memorable kind of actor network theory-inspired project that you, you've undertaken that kind of encapsulates why it's such a great way to kind of think about the social? I think the most memorable was actually my first study, and I'm a bit <laughs> sad to mention it because it's so far away from what I'm doing now, but I want to mention it anyhow because I went to study inclusive leadership in, in Danish schools. So they were beginning to problemize uh, segregation and sort of problematizing children with special needs by labeling them. And in order to do that, they sort of started to import all these sort of social constructivist ideas that we have culture and we can change our culture. We can view children through their positive aspects, through their values rather than find problems. We can find problems in the surroundings, in the institutions rather than in the, the individual children. And I think these are all very, I mean, they, I'm very much aligned with these values. So mm. I thought it would be really interesting to see how these ideas circulate and make a difference. And what actor network theory allowed me to do was rather than take culture of values of inclusion and values of diversity to have them as sort of 
normative concepts that I would go in and sort of benchmark schools, did they live up to that or not? I would be really interested in seeing and following those ideas and see how they made a difference in the schools, how they were translated and became all sorts of unruly things. And I think this is actually what you can find with actor network theory also in your study of technology and datification, that once they enter the school, all sorts of things happen or may not happen. They may Mm. be completely ignored or they may be taken up in very surprising ways. So ENT actually allows you to, to find practices that you could not have imagined and actually learn something new. So what did you learn new about the inclusive school? So I, I learned that the notion of reflect, the reflective teacher also had its own sort of normative judgments of who were the good teachers and who were not. Mm. And it would create this hierarchy where some teachers who were able to articulate and describe what they did with children in a, the right reflective language, it became almost ritualistic. Yeah. They were seen as good teachers and other teachers who might have great relationships to, to children but did not master that sort of abstractive language. They were excluded. So it became a new way of also maybe not excluding teachers but became a new uh, scale of, for viewing who performs well according to this ideal and who does not. Absolutely. Well, that's really, really fascinating. So, I mean, you very humbly look back to the first piece of research that you did. But I mean, in education research, I guess ANT has been picked up in, in all sorts of ways. There's no one orthodox way that you use ANT. But have you seen anything recently in education research that's been a really kind of innovative or interesting application of ANT? So, I think ANT has made its most profound influence when it is combined in, with the tradition of governance by numbers. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of studies uh, looking into that, uh, where you actually, so you, so a lot of people have, for instance, been looking into PISA, yeah. right? OECD's yeah. standardized testing of and comparison of countries. And it's a mystery when you think about it. How is it possible to compare countries with such different teaching traditions, values, cultures? How is it possible to compare them and have a rank? And then what ANC can do is it can take that mystery down to earth, as Latour would say it, as he also put it in his last book, right? Where you actually look at the concrete social material practices, look at sort of the mundane, often overlooked work and power of standards, of digitalization, of centers of calculation where comparisons can be made. And you can also look into the performative effects in terms of how they are taken up in both surprising and unsurprising ways by different countries. Mm. So I think actor network theory has made some really interesting contributions here. And kind of flipping the script a little bit, are there any kind of common mistakes that you see in education researchers when they take up ANT? I mean, what's the kind of common weaknesses? Is there anything that we need to avoid if we take this approach up? So I think we've reached a point now where actor network theory has become mundane. Its mm. own success has been so big that I don't think it's surprising anymore to discover that X, Y, and C are not a policy or a technology or a learning material, but it's an actor network theory. So I think a lot of important work is going into demonstrating the complicated relations between human and non-human entities, but some studies also stop there. Yeah. And then it risks of becoming, yes, it's an actor network theory, and so what? So I think it's always important to use actor network theory to ask interesting questions. So what does it do to the human, to the student, to the teacher, to the learning material, to our idea of education? 
What sort of questions does it compel us to ask? What are the normative and practical implications of this? So I think the problem is stopping too early. You identify the actor network theory, and yeah. then that's it. <laughs> I mean, there's often a criticism that ANT studies are too descriptive or flat or don't really get to grips with kind of political issues or issues of power. So I guess that's what you're saying. You're stopping at just describing. Well, I would say if you want to tackle with issues of power through actor network theory, actor network theory is an excellent way of sort of mapping how power relations are built, how they're reconfigured and shifted. And I think especially in Michel Collin's work uh, is, is important to look at if you're interested in using ANT for the study of power relations. So I think it really depends on what you use it to ask. So you can ask about how does digitalization and datification shift power relations, for instance, between public and private actors in the school, a central critical issue to education studies. But it really depends on where you take it, because ENT does not tell you what sort of critical questions should you ask. So this is where you need your own sort of analytical sense of what are the important questions, what is really at stake here. Yeah, so doing ANT is not the kind of the, the end point, it's the start point. Now, just to wrap up, I mean, this approach started 45 years ago. You said it's becoming a little bit mundane or commonplace. I mean, where is ANT going in the 2020s, 2030s? I don't know if you could say that ANT is going anywhere or maybe it's going everywhere. So if you apply ANT reflexively to itself, you will see that ANT has transformed whenever it meets new empirical practices. So hopefully that's also what happens when it comes to education studies, that it's not simply a matter of sort of confirming old tenets and finding, you know, the, the grand old grandfathers and the one grandmother of actor network theory and confirming that in education, but using that to renew our own conceptual repertoire. Uh, of course, there's some people talk about post-ANT, but that was back in the late 90s. Um, I still think these uh, discussions here are valid. They're very much about mess, complexity, multiplicity, topology. These are all concepts that are quite fashionable, <laughs> also in education studies. Myself, I find the most interesting dialogues find taking place in, at the intersections between actor network theory and anthropology mm. or actor network theory and critical data studies. So this is where I take my inspiration from. Excellent. Well, that's been fascinating. Thanks ever so much for that. I mean, I wanted to learn about this and I think I've learned a lot and good luck in the future. Thank you very much.